You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Christian Dupont, who is using Node to build a service that helps you manage your SaaS subscriptions. Christian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Sure. So my name is Christian Dupont, and I'm the CEO and founder of Submotion.io. It's a SaaS management tool, so SaaS as in software as a service. And the idea is that you use this tool to administrate all the services your company is using. So that would be Slack and Google Suite and GitHub and Trello and all of those uh, things that your, uh, your team is using. And from Submotion, you can administrate who has an account and who needs to get one. And does that person that we fired last year still have an account and still have access to something? So that's the basic gist of it. Hmm. That sounds very useful. And it's funny because you kind of made like a SaaS to manage other SaaSs, sort of. I did, yeah. And that can be quite confusing when explaining it to people, especially people who aren't completely familiar with the term SaaS. That is something that's becoming much more uh, uh, common knowledge these days, I guess. But, uh, but I still run into that uh, meta SaaS explanation every now and then, and that's a bit confusing to people. Right. SaaSception. Yeah. That, that, that's, that does seem really useful, though, because I was recently onboarded into Jira for some clients that I'm doing some work for. And yeah, it took like a couple back and forths just to get set up to have access. So I would imagine would your service be something like they can maybe use to make it easier for them to manage uh, my access to that? That's the idea of it, yeah. So um, a lot of is it, the idea came from when I was working at a company where uh, a person was fired, and said person got very upset about being fired, and this person still had access to the Facebook uh, page where they could, were doing uh, promotions and stuff. And uh, this person went in and did some damage of some sort. I'm not actually sure what was written, but I just remember thinking because they were removed from Slack and their email was closed down immediately. But they still had access to this and probably other things as well. And I just remember thinking this must be a problem for a lot of places because we're all in so many systems right now. And for companies that aren't, if you're in a Fortune 500 company or something, you you have uh, Microsoft set up with a uh, single sign-on and everything's managed by this uh, department that handles all of that, then it's probably under control. But for smaller companies, that can really be an issue, I think. And that does seem to be the case. And that's also, uh, the like, the, the market seems to be expanding right now. There's uh, several competitors showing up. So um, in, when I started, I didn't really find anything. But now I do see that the landscape is uh, shaping for that. Nice. Yeah, I guess that's uh, a sign that things are going pretty well. Um, so my company is, uh, I'm running it, I'm the founder of it and the, the solo founder. So my brother has uh, is another shareholder in it, but he's doing just a bit of marketing here and there. Um, but I'm still doing contracting full time. So it's definitely not keeping me afloat uh, at this point. Um, so there's still a way to go for me. Okay, so then are you the sole developer on this project then? I am. Nice. How's that experience? And also, like, what was it like just starting with like an empty folder and, and getting to the point where, hey, like you were able to tell your brother, would you just ship like the MVP? <laughs> yeah. So the, I started doing some market validation first. I, I made a bunch of calls and for a couple of months I was just talking to people, uh, trying to figure out if this was a, an idea that other people thought was good. And I could have probably done more of a 
lean startup, uh, Tim Ferriss style uh, uh, fake landing page and all that. I didn't really do that. I just started building the MVP when I felt like, okay, this is something that there is going to be a market for. And that was pretty much an empty folder. Um, so I was uh, pretty comfortable doing web development by then. So I just uh, sort of launched into it. And, and uh, yeah, that went kind of smooth, I guess you could say. Okay. Yeah, I'm not 100% familiar with Tim Ferriss's approach on like the fake landing page, but does it go all the way through to the point where people can actually sign up with their card? And then instead of charging them, you're just like, psych, just kidding. Like, don't, it's not ready yet. That's right. That's at least my, uh, my understanding of it. I don't know. I, I don't know that he actually advertises that anymore, but I think that was a thing back in the day. So uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't do that. Right. So, you know, you mentioned you're comfortable doing web development. And uh, before the show, you did say you're using Node to build this project. Do you want to go into the details of, you know, what led you to use Node in this project? Sure. Um, so I've been a programmer for many years and I, I sort of started doing C++ uh, back in the day, games development and 3D stuff and so on. Doing this sort of grown-up stuff where that has a database and uh, backend and, and later on web development was actually something that came to me a little bit later in my life. But um, I, I'm pretty comfortable with .NET as well. But I feel like after I started using Node, a lot of people dislike JavaScript and, and, uh, and call it bad names and so on. But I think it's actually a really nice environment for writing, uh, especially web uh, code in. Um, obviously, on the browser, you need it. But, uh, or you could do something that compiles down to JavaScript. But I don't know that that's necessarily very good, except for TypeScript. Um, and on the back end, I just think that the, the single threadedness of it works really well. So async await works uh, really well for at least everything I'm doing. Um, so I think it's just a nice workflow and I just, uh, I, I wanted that. It was a very conscious choice to go with that and not just uh, because I didn't know what else to do. Right. And when it comes to Node there on the back end, are you using like the latest LTS release or something else? Um, it's version 16 and I think this probably something later right now but uh but this is i'm i'm not i think my code could probably run on a an older version um so i'm using the typescript compiler to compile down to i forget which version of uh, es es2015 or whatever it is um so so my code is pretty backward compatible i'm not using many fancy new features of it so um so that isn't really that important to me Right. Now, you mentioned you were working with .NET in a previous life or, you know, before. Yeah. Uh, what was that experience like for you transitioning to use TypeScript where now it's like, you know, I would imagine with .NET, like if you're using something like C Sharp, that is like a statically typed language. Was it nice for you to jump over to TypeScript then? I jumped over to JavaScript initially and uh, and the source code for Submotion is mostly JavaScript, both back end and front end. But it's a weird combination where I started introducing the TypeScript compiler Mostly because I wanted to do some um, types for my data models, and I can get into that a little bit later because I, I wrote some open source code that uh, that I think might be interesting to you. Um, but so I I started transitioning to JavaScript, and initially, like so many people, going from static typing to completely dynamic typing, it made me very uncomfortable. But then after a couple of years, I guess that felt like the that made me feel like that's where I was most most comfortable. It felt very it felt very flexible and it felt like I could get very far very fast. And I guess this sort of a like a gradient, like I'm also right now toying a little bit with the programming language uh, called Rust, which is very strictly typed. And that's, it seems like this sort of a gradient or a, a spectrum where Rust is on the very strict end and JavaScript is on the very loose end and TypeScript is somewhere in between. 
And I find now that TypeScript is quite comfortable for me. But when I came from uh, C Sharp, which is what uh, back in the day, I felt like JavaScript was a little bit crazy. But uh, but now I think it's it's quite nice. Yeah, I could, I could imagine going from C Sharp to JavaScript and you're just like, you compare zero as a number and zero as a string. And yeah, you get all sorts of funky results. That's true. I, so uh, JavaScript catches most flack because of the weird coercion rules, I think. And they're definitely very weird, but I just don't think they're very big problems in real life. I, I don't feel like that. those are the things that cause me any issues when I'm writing JavaScript code. I think that it has a major issue with the date class, for instance. That is a complete uh, dumpster fire. And I really hope that. So I think there's a new temporal design coming up that I've, I saw a headline the other day, but I, I don't know really when we can expect that to land, or especially in browsers. But uh, but that could really use some uh, some redoing. But the the coercion rules and that is just I I have some linter rules set up to warn me if I'm doing something that uh, will cause an implicit coercion and then uh, I just rewrite the code and then I don't find that I have many big problems with that. I guess um, the lack of a decimal type might be an issue for uh, money handling, which I don't really have any of yet. So that is something that maybe would be a problematic uh, thing. But uh, but at least so far, it hasn't really been an issue for me. Right. Yeah. And when in doubt with money, you can always save things as an integer in your database as cents, and then you can just like multiply it out to dollars later. Right. Now, speaking of packages, though, in general, do you actually have Node running straight up to serve the web server with no framework? Or do you use something like Express or Koa or something else? I use Koa, yes. So Koa, uh, well, you, you're familiar with it, it sounds like, but that's uh, basically Express. I think it's the same people. They just redid it. And I think Express is still much more popular, but I don't understand why anybody starting a new project wouldn't just use Koa, because it seems like it's just the cleaned up version of Express to me, but uh, each to their own. Yeah, so I'm not like super, super well versed in the Node community, but I remember back in the day, TJ Holloway Chuck, uh, the creator of Express and many other libraries, yeah, he developed that for a long time. And then I remember he was like, oh, I just released this new framework called Koa. And then like that's sort of around the time I kind of dropped off a little bit from the Node community. But yeah, it's interesting because it's like that should be very much well maintained versus Express, right? Like I don't think Express is even actively developed anymore, is it? I am not sure. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, really happy with Koa. I am a little bit concerned that it does not seem like popularity is picking up. And that can always mean that it's being abandoned and then there can be security issues coming up and so on. Um, so far, I don't, I, I haven't heard of any issues. So, and it works uh, really well and, and it does everything Express does just with, you have to configure it a little bit more, like it's a little bit more raw. So, uh, Express is a little bit more everything included style, but, um. But yeah, I think, I think it's very nice. Right. Do you want to go over maybe some, well, I'm not sure if Koa even uses like a term called like middleware, but do you have any packages set up with Koa, like extensions or things that just could run? Yeah. So I have uh, some middleware as I have something called Helmet, which I think is inspired from a Ruby on Rails thing, which is which adds uh, constant security policies to uh, the serve files and so on. I have something uh, for uh, parsing JWT tokens. What else do I have? I forget, but I have a list of five or so pieces of middleware, something that parses bodies uh, if they're served as JSON, uh, stuff like that. So um, yeah, and that it just comes, uh, like you just add the, the default Koa libraries that that you need and, and then you're good to go. Okay, so like for those, it's basically anything you would find on Koa's documentation. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Now, what about packages maybe outside of Koa itself, like just general things you might see in your package.json file? Are there any of packages there that helped you build this project out? Um, yeah, so what I mentioned before, so um, I'm using something called Knex or Nyex or I don't know how you pronounce it, but uh, uh, which is a, uh, a query utility library. So that is a, a way to access a database, basically, and, and it helps you write queries. It's not an ORM. Um, and that was quite important to me. I didn't really like the ORM style of uh, doing database uh, manipulation. That was quite popular in .NET, um, Active Records, uh, and the, sorry, no, the the uh, .NET MVC. I even forget what it's called now. But um, but heavily inspired by Ruby and Rails. And I I don't know. I've I feel like um, the I think people call it object relational impedance mismatch. Like the the trying to map uh, relational database uh, the the whole model and the whole sort of perspective into an object oriented programming perspective doesn't sit well with me. So I, I wanted to just do regular queries, and Knex does that very well. And then I uh, created this uh, library, which is open source, that can generate um, TypeScript types from my uh, from my tables in my database. So I use those two combined to uh, query my uh, my database. Um, that is, I guess, the next level right above uh, Koa. Okay, and yeah, I'm not super detailed into some of these libraries, but isn't there like another one called like Objection or something that might be built on top of Connects or however you want to pronounce that one? Uh, possibly, I'm not familiar with it in that case. But there's quite a few that uh, that use Connects is quite popular, and and there's quite a few that that built on top of it in one way or another. Yeah. No, I only brought that one up because it sounds like that library that you wrote, if it converts TypeScript classes into database tables, like I, I wonder if that's a feature of objection or not. Right. So my library goes the other way. So what it does is it, it reads a live database and figures out which tables are in it in that database and creates TypeScript interfaces out of that. Uh, I've, yeah, it's a, it, so I've seen others do that approach, but but it doesn't seem to be very popular. But I think it's a very, very nice uh, strategy because that means that I keep my database, I migrate it with the regular SQL and, uh, and I just, uh, I can write all my queries in regular SQL. There's no uh, weird object syntax that I need to to learn. I, I just uh, update my database the way I want it. And then this thing generates types. So I, every time I've uh, created migration, I, I run my generator. And then that means that all the classes are up to date. So I can still say, OK, give me all the members uh, that have uh, these characteristics. And uh, and that will be type safe, even in my JavaScript code, because um, I can use the TypeScript uh, compiler to scan through JavaScript code as well. And if I add a few JS doc comments here and there, that means that it can actually do pretty well with figuring out which types things have even in, in JavaScript. But I am slowly transitioning to having most of my code uh, being TypeScript. So I'll probably get rid of that approach uh, at some point. But uh, for now, that that is how it works. Very cool. Now, earlier you mentioned, you know, you know, you're using some type of linting tool to help protect yourself against like certain, you know, things you can get in trouble with, with the like corrosion and, and whatever else. Yeah. Uh, are you just using ESLint for that? I am, yes. Okay. And when it comes to setting up ESLint, are you using one of the pre-made like Airbnb uh, plugins that you can install? Or did you roll your own from scratch or something in between? Um, so I I very recently actually created a repository that has my preferred configuration because I have it in a bunch of open source uh, projects as well. So the so the sort of uh, foundation for my linting setup is in that repository and uh, and it's free for anyone to use if they should like to. 
But uh, but I found that that's a very nice strategy because uh, pretty much every open source library that I write, I want to have the same basic Linux rule set up. Um, I'm then on top of that in Submotion, I have a, a custom Linux rule uh, library that I've written because I I think that I I actually think the world hasn't really realized yet how powerful linting is. I think it can be used more of a, we, we think of it often as just a way of uh, enforcing a style or something. And now with the prettier, that's basically pretty much, uh, that need has disappeared almost. But, uh, but I feel like it, it can, you can think of it as sort of architecture assertions. Like it's, it's sort of uh, unit tests for your architecture, even including the code that you haven't written yet. You can write some rules that say, well, when you have a file like this, it should have these following things in it. And it shouldn't have a variable that has this name because that means you're doing something wrong. And it can be, you can write those Linux rules yourself in, and they're quite easy to write and they can be really powerful because they show up in your editor when you're like, when you're typing. So it's like the perfect time for you to see that error message or warning. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of linters in general. And yeah, if you're not using like a compiled language, it's very easy to get yourself into trouble at runtime where, you know, maybe you just have a variable that's just, you know, maybe you made a typo in the name, like the linter is going to pick that up. Right. So for instance, I have a, a quite fun uh, rule that uh, people like. Um, so I, I have uh, Submotion running on the domain submotion.io and at one point, I accidentally uh, put in an email that people could write to something at submotion.com, which is not a, a domain that I own. And that, I feel like, is a, is a pretty obvious mistake to possibly make. Um, so I created a linter rule that if I ever write anywhere in my code the, the, uh, the character sequence submotion.com, it will not uh, tolerate it. So, uh, so I get warnings if I should ever do that again. Nice. Yeah, that's a great example of just making a custom linting rule. It's quite fun because you could never do that with a type system. Like if you wanted to try and enforce that, uh, describe that situation with a type system, you'd, you'd be uh, pretty uh, challenged. Yeah, for sure. So when it comes to the node side of things, uh, server side, do you happen to use anything like WebSockets with this application or no? Not at the moment, no. So everything is uh, a basic REST. There's no GraphQL or anything. So uh, I make REST requests and I, I think there will probably be uh, WebSockets at some point, but uh, so far I haven't I haven't done anything like that. Okay, so just based on what you said, it, it kind of sounds like the backend is an API and then you're using some JavaScript library on the front end, is that is that correct? That's right, yeah. Okay, do you wanna go into details of how you have that set up on the front end? Like are you using React or Vue or something else? Yes, so the front end is uh, all React and um, there's no Redux involved. There's uh, like a, a little library that I wrote that, that works together with the, the TypeScript generated uh, types that I spoke of before. Um, so I have in my database, I can tag tables by the using the comment system. So Postgres has uh, support for comments in both tables and columns and functions and almost everything. And I made it so that I my little uh, generator library parses those comments and it, and looks for a tag called workspace. And so if it sees that, it knows that um, this is a, a workspace uh, model. And then there's a it generates a, a couple of files that that sets up a little system that automatically synchronizes those from the backend to the front end. So I guess synchronize isn't the right word. It sends those from the backend to the front end, but it can also send diffs or like operational transformations from the backend to the front end. So you know that you've changed something 
on a particular uh, uh, column in a in some table, then it will create a little uh, JSON object that it sends with the the payload from whatever REST request you made, and the front end reads both the result of that or or the response, but in as well in the JSON payload, it will then look up and see, oh, there's a little transformation going on here. I will apply that to my local workspace, and then that uh, workspace is updated. So that's sort of a a uh, uh, server-side Redux thing I have going there. I don't really know how to describe it better than that, but uh, we can try and go into more detail if you like. Yeah, it's going to be hard for me to dive into that in more detail because it's like super low-level Postgres stuff. But That's my right. takeaway from that is like, well, since you didn't really just go all in with an ORM, like it sounds like you've spent a pretty good amount of time on your own just getting like really used to not just writing like raw SQL queries and stuff, but also understanding like what features your database actually has and then like making the most out of that i guess you could say that yeah i think i'm pretty interested in the the like the whole like how you design your data model is so central to what the product you're building is right it's like what are the what are the tables you have what are the terminology that your customers use like what what do they think of and how is the how do those map to each other and where do you do that uh, do you do the denormalization uh, in the database with using views and materialized views or do you do them on the back end or do you do it even in the front end or i guess if you like if you you have a standard ruby on rails app where you just have the views that are generated when you uh, create a new model then you could say that you do the denormalization in the user's head because they sort of you just sort of have a oh here is a a person and that person has a list of uh, I don't know subscriptions for instance then they can just see persons and subscriptions and they have to make the connection in their head so uh, that's the, the very uh, end of that spectrum yeah so like that's like describing basically like a belongs to and it has many right it's like the user has many subscriptions or whatever yeah so when it comes to the Postgres side of things are you using any interesting features that folks might not be familiar with like they can maybe look some stuff up like full text search or even, you know, database triggers or maybe using Postgres kind of for like pub sub type of stuff? So I'm using some triggers. I don't know that they're super interesting. Um, so I I just felt like, uh, so for instance, this, uh, the like one basic part of Submotion is you have this grid view or, or sort of a spreadsheet view. So you have the, you have people going down in a list and then you have services going out uh, horizontally at the top and then you can see this grid so you can see uh, if a person has an account in a system to reflect that in the database i have uh, so those are services and members and then the uh, a cell in the grid is called a service member and those are created or deleted automatically when i create a new service or member and you're not allowed to uh, touch them uh, as a, as the as a user of the database so to speak but that's that's uh, basically what there is so I don't know that there's anything else that's very interesting. I don't really have any queues or anything. I have uh, my server runs some cron jobs, um, and that's all. Like, there's no microservices or anything, so it's just the, it's the same process. But that will do some things. But uh, if they fail, it will just try again uh, the next day. So that's uh, that's pretty simple. Okay. Yeah, that database bit that you described it sounds like like a many-to-many -many type of table, right? Where you just have two foreign keys, one for this and that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cool setup because doing that with the trigger, yeah, it makes it so that you don't need to learn some funky like ORM syntax, I guess, to make that association in, in your app code, right? That's right, yes. 
Nice. So by the way, just switching gears here a little bit on the front end, you, know, you, are, you mentioned that you are using Rack there. Do you happen to use Webpack or something else to manage all of your front end assets? I am using Parcel. That works fine. It's uh, they they are a little bit so they it's a little bit slow. And uh, for for another project that uh, where my contracting work, I'm using this new thing called Vite, V I T E. I think they say you should pronounce it Vite. I think there's a meme around that one where like nobody knows how to pronounce it. <laughs> Possibly. So uh, yeah, and that is a that is a pleasant pleasure to work with uh, so far at least. I so I haven't really tested it much it it might uh, maybe it will uh, create problems down the line i don't know uh, but parcel has uh, it, it has uh, it's a little bit slow and also it doesn't currently work with uh, tailwind version 2.01 further i think at least last time i tried upgrading so that is a bit annoying so much so that i've considered switching over but it is a lot of work changing those things so i'd rather avoid it i I started out with Webpack and and that became too tedious and then I switched to Parcel. So I try not to switch too many times because it's really annoying. Yeah, I remember just getting Webpack working and it took quite a while to get that config to work. I guess on the bright side is like now that it is working, I can kind of just like copy paste that stuff between projects. But yeah, my use case is also probably much similar or much more simpler than yours. Like I don't need any like crazy rack processing or hot reloading or stuff. It's mainly just like, yeah, a couple little basic loaders. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, it's obviously very complex. So I understand why it has to be, or why it's definitely difficult to get right. But it does feel like, uh, I don't know, it feels like we've been set back a little bit uh, to in, in terms of uh, built tools, like uh, how difficult it is to get something working that you can just work with. Yeah. So I have a very serious question here. Like, how can you possibly sleep at night knowing that you can't upgrade Tailwind to use the JIT compiler? I know. It's uh, it pains me. <laughs> it, it's really <laughs> annoying. I really want to change because uh, that is very very nice. I'm uh, I have deep respect for what uh, what those guys are doing. So uh, so I hope that I'll be able to do that soon. Right. So then your whole site then back end and front end is it both set up to use Tailwind? Um, yeah, so there's no backend rendering going on. Uh, I just serve a, a bundle and it will render the whole thing. And that even includes the front page or the landing page, which you definitely shouldn't do. And I, I only get away with or allow myself to get away with because I'm not doing any serious SEO or anything. Um, so because it's still sort of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still in a uh, searching for product market fit kind of phase, and uh, and then that marketing bit isn't so important to me. But once I do, I will make sure that uh, either the landing page goes on a CDN is, and maybe is uh, hosted on Squarespace or something instead, um, or at least it will be server-side rendered. Uh, and then Tailwind will run on the back end as well, I guess. But right now it's just front end. Nice. Yeah, I probably should have chosen my words more carefully. Like back end, front end, I kind of meant just like the back end, like the application aspect, and then also like the marketing page or something. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's all Tailwind. I'm a huge fan. Cool. Are you using Tailwind straight up with like your own self-designed components or did you go with Tailwind UI or Tailkit or something else? I purchased Tailwind UI mostly because I, well, no, not only because I wanted to support them, but definitely because I wanted to support them, but also just because I was very curious about seeing what they created. But, but by then I had designed most of it. I'm definitely no designer, but uh, but yeah, I'm as I'm kind of a, a jack of all trades in this. Uh, then I I did the best I could <laughs> so far. So uh, and and Tailwind makes it really nice and easy to work with. I think so. 
So f from that perspective, I, f I feel like it's, uh, it's pretty decent. Nice. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Tailwind as well. I've been using it lately for the last couple of projects. But yeah, I'm the same way, like primarily a developer, not so much a designer. Right. But just looking at the pre-made stuff that Tailwind UI and Tailkit have, it's so much easier to go like from one of their existing components instead of like building something from scratch. Like it's so much easier to modify something that already exists. It's, uh, I wrote a blog post recently about uh, naming things. Uh, because I I found that there's a there's a similarity in the way I've approached uh, TypeScript and uh, and Tailwind. Um, so TypeScript, uh, if you're familiar, is is uh, duck typed. So anything that uh, that looks like a duck, acts like a duck, is a duck, and so on. And uh, and you can create new types by just combining them. You can just say, well, this is a this or that, uh, a string or an integer, and uh, and uh, you can just combine those. So that means that you don't always have to come up with a name for things that are combinations of things. Uh, and the example I had was uh, uh, for my generator tool that I have a situation where I generate uh, tables or views, or well, I, cre I create something out of tables or views. And if I'd been writing C sharp, I would like kill myself before I uh, had come up with whatever the common denominator is for those two. And I don't know what, like, I can't think of a good name. I still uh, can't. Maybe there's a good name that properly describes that combination of things without describing also more things that wouldn't fit in that. But when you're writing TypeScript, you just say, well, it's a table or a view. You just combine those two types. And it's a little bit the same, I feel, when using Tailwind. I say, well, this div just has a margin of two. I don't need to come up with a name and say, well, this is a... This is the button container. Well, okay, well, so I actually have this already in a container, so it's a it's a container wrapper thing now. And like I feel like I made so many of those weird class names before that describe things that don't really make sense to describe. And that's just uh, I think that's just very nice. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like I think back to many many years ago before like the idea of you know having something like an MT two for like a margin top two was a thing. Uh -huh. I used to name my my CSS classes like you know small margin, tiny margin, really tiny margin, like <laughs> microscopic margin. Like yeah, you just get these weird names. But that <laughs> means that you were even then uh, still accepting that there were no semantics involved then, because that's like I feel like that's what was hard for me to get over. I think for a lot of people, they want it to be the semantics and not the utility of it, and that's like well, what is philosophically, what is it that I'm making here when, when it just has a margin? Well, it's, 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 a, <laughs> it's a, I, I, I don't know. I can't think of a good example right now, but. Uh, yeah, like miscellaneous thing with spaces, but even that's not like, I, I know what you mean. They're like naming something a button or a card or like a photo right. gallery. Yeah. Those are like semantic names. But yeah, sometimes, yeah, I, I forget who said it. There was someone in like the Laravel community because Tailwind's pretty involved with that. Okay. Maybe it was Jeffrey Way or something like that. I don't know. Something like you have to fight for your abstractions, right? And Tailwind kind of gives you this baseline where you can just add your utility classes. Maybe you abstract something out to a component later or something like that, but like that only comes after you actually need to do that. Yeah. Now, speaking of components, though, do you want to go into maybe some React components that you've created, like what their names are and kind of what they do? Sure. So one thing that I have is for this, uh, the grid view that I mentioned before, which is sort of like a spreadsheet, because my thinking is that uh, what most people using this will be transitioning away from is probably a real spreadsheet where they have, like, who has an account in which system. Um, and so I wanted that transition to be sort of smooth. And I wanted that to be... Uh, pretty performant so i'm trying to use the the sticky um position sticky in css to to make it so that you can always see the headers 
but in two dimensions and uh and that was pretty tricky and i i created a react component for a sticky table or a sticky headers table i forget actually what i called it right now um but that's uh, one thing that presented sort of a challenge and uh and that has like obviously all the cells in there you need to sort of optimize that a little bit so it doesn't re-render those on every uh change because that can be a lot quickly besides from that i uh, so i have a, a layout skeleton uh there's a couple of classes there for for like top uh top bar and sidebar and uh menus and stuff but i don't know that there's many uh, classes or components otherwise that aren't uh pretty pretty standard um off the top of my head so like if you had to guess just like off the top of your head like how many screens do you think your app has like individual pages um it, it's not many it's uh 10 15 maybe there's uh there's not that many different screens the the most work that i've made is in writing different integrations i think so uh so you can connect uh submotion to google suite or slack or uh, jira and so on and so writing all those integrations and figuring out what their apis were and all that that's uh that that is the bulk of the code that i have yeah i definitely have to give folks like you credit for that type of stuff because yeah, okay, if you're working with something like Stripe's API, awesome documentation, yeah. really well supported, super easy to follow, great, great solution. But then I would imagine some of these other APIs that you need to deal with, probably not the best. You don't need to like name names or something, but like, yeah, how, how, I don't want to say, I don't want to like push you into saying how bad was it or whatever, but like, were there some APIs that were like very, very hard to deal with? I don't know that it's been that bad actually. So the most of them have been pretty okay documented, but um, there's an interesting thing going on with like I thought I could write an an OAuth two uh, client thing pretty easily and use that almost everywhere, but that needs to be uh, specialized so much for every service, and that has been something that's been frustrating because like the way uh, different services uh, expect they're like you need to supply it with a token and a code and a state and so on and what how they respond that those differ in the tiniest little ways like do they want it as uh, as uh, form encoded uh, values or in the url or uh, and uh, and what should be the exact name and so on and the standard specifies all of these things but most people tend to ignore them and the documentation doesn't always say what or it says multiple things and i've experienced that for several of the big uh, uh companies um so as you said i won't name any names but that, that's definitely been a bit frustrating other than that it uh, it's quite easy to to deal with uh, then the biggest frustration is that some companies have really really nice setups um so uh for instance for quickbooks you can get a complete test setup uh, saying, I'm a developer, uh, give me a, a company that has some accounts and some uh, people and some, uh, well, all, all the things that they can supply. And you can make a request towards that. But, uh, but most don't have that. And I, I can understand that. But that means that for, for someone like me who wants to test, for instance, for uh, Miro, um, I, uh, I, I have a free account at Miro that I'm using, but, uh, but that doesn't allow me all the features that the API specifies. So I can get a paid account there, but, and that's fine, but then I need to get paid accounts for, for all the other places where I'm making integrations. So, so there's some limit there. And if I want to test something like create a user or delete a user, that can affect how much I would be paying that company. So there's definitely some challenges there and and i feel like it's something the industry could get uh, slightly better at but um 
I, hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah. That's a really good point. That's something I never even thought about. Yeah. Because I typically don't deal with APIs like that, but I could see that being a huge problem. Yeah. Like having a sandbox test area where you can just pull down fake data that the company made for you is like that. Yeah. That is so nice. And it's like, it's, it also, also, also make it a, a pain to test locally, like do writing unit tests. Because I can look in their documentation and, and try and create mock data out of that, but I'm not very comfortable with that. First of all, I don't trust that uh, they write the correct thing in their documentation. And secondly, I want to keep it up to date. So I would really like to be able to access a real endpoint, but, uh, but that's difficult with uh, when I need to go through the OAuth 2 uh, scenario and all that. So there's a whole uh, host of issues there that that I hadn't really completely foreseen, but uh, but that are definitely a challenge. Right. Do you have any interesting stories around like, well, well, let's rewind and talk a little bit about Stripe because I know you mentioned, you know, you're not really handling payments yet, but Stripe has a really nice idea of being able to basically just lock into a specific version of their API, right? From like 2021, like July 2nd or something. Yeah. Did you run into any situations where some of these providers that you're dealing with, they don't allow you to lock it into a version. So it's like suddenly like your app is working yesterday, but it's broken tomorrow. No, I don't actually think so. I've, I feel like there was something with uh, uh, Monday.com that changed, but I actually forget what the situation was uh, completely. But um, but there was something going on there that they deprecated something, but I think they were pretty, pretty cool about it. Um, other than that, it's been... So, for instance, GitHub recently changed the way that uh, you should sign tokens or something, but they've sent an email to me saying, hey, we're making this change and, and you should do something about it. And here are the following steps you can take. And this will uh, pull into effect in a, I don't know when, but in a good amount in the future. So so that's very nice that uh, that they're doing something like this. And, and I feel like probably most places do that. I'm just like, I, I really like having automated tests that can, that I trust because I feel that code rusts if you just leave it. That's just my experience. So, so I would r very much like to have something that continuously tests things. And and this is an area where I just feel like that's that's been very hard for me to reach the level of testing that I would feel comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is about code, but it feels like whenever I cr crack open like an old code base on a Saturday or something, it's always like something broke. I don't know what broke, but it <laughs> bro but it broke. It did. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you mentioned uh, test here and maybe test coverage or whatever. Uh, which testing library do you use? And do you have any informal specifications that you follow to be like, well, you know, I want to make sure that this module is at 90% test coverage or whatever? I'm using Jest like uh, almost everybody is in JavaScript these days. And I, I'm super happy with it. I don't really understand how it became the standard, but, uh, but it is. And so I think it's probably better to follow that and at least have the the power of having a community working on it than than to do use something exotic that nobody is using and that will just fade away um, but so jest has interesting perspective so they want to make sure that you can run tests in parallel and they want to uh, sort of uh, guarantee a level of isolation and to do this they they set up a whole system where they take over the entire world and and try to sandbox your things and uh, they don't even let you uh, log anything to the console. Uh, I mean, you can do that, but that doesn't show up. It goes into their buffer somewhere, and then when the test runner is done, it will present you with a nice report of how everything went, including your log statements. And I, I think that's really annoying because it, uh, if uh, something crashes, I, sometimes I just don't get the log statements. I think they've 
fixed that now. There was a time where, where they would simply just not uh, be printed and uh, it was just really difficult to debug tests. But even now I find that it's difficult to figure out what the order of things were because you, you it runs all the tests and then at the end it print, prints out all the errors and, and you sort of get these log statements in between and stuff and I don't think that's very nice. But um, but it is uh, it works and it has a, a nice assertion uh, library and and there's a pretty decent community around it so um, so so that's fine on the front end I'm using Enzyme which is not cool anymore everybody's using testing library by Kent C Dodds and uh, and I'm using that for where I'm contracting at the moment so it's I definitely prefer it but uh, but yeah I haven't gotten around to changing that and I don't have many tests on my front end. I feel like that is um, because of the system I uh, described to you before, that is pretty heavily tested. And and given that, that means that I don't have a whole lot of logic on the front end going on. It's it's a lot of uh, a button makes a rest request and then the response of that goes into that uh, synchronization thing which updates my little uh, reduxy like uh, state in the front end. Um, but as I've tested that separately, then the, the individual components, I, I pretty much trust that they work. So test coverage on the front end is, is pretty low. It's maybe 30, 40% or something. Um, and it's not something I feel super bad about. It's, I would like to improve it, but I, I don't think that I've had any real issues from it. Right. That makes sense. And on the back end, when it comes to, you know, having all of those tests run in parallel, does it have like, or just does just have some type of like sandbox mode for Postgres where it kind of, you probably know the terms better than me, but there's a way in Postgres to like still make the right from your point of view, but it doesn't actually make the actual database right. So it means your tests will be a lot faster, but you're actually still like going through the motions of doing the right without actually doing it. Yeah. So no, Postgres is lacking. What, what, what I would like it to do is uh, nested transactions so that I could say, here is my test database, like the, the, the template for it and create one transaction per test suite or something and then say okay now you can go and do your things and when the whole thing is done I'll roll back the outer transaction and make sure that I have the test database as it was. You have something called save points in Postgres and I forget exactly what the issue was but I remember concluding that it didn't work for me. Um, so what I'm doing right now is actually I have I create a, a, a test database initially which i uh, run migrations on and seed and then i uh, create a new database using that first one as a template for each test suite and that sounds horribly slow but it's actually i think it, like that takes uh, some 200 milliseconds or something per test so so that works fine enough i mean that will maybe be a problem when i have 10 or 100 times as much code on the back end as i do now for now it's certainly fine Okay, so like how many tests do you have now, roughly? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't really know. I, so backend coverage is 80, 80 to 90%. And uh, and I have like uh, 10,000 10, lines of code for backend. I also have around 10,000 lines of code for frontend. I, I tested it before this interview just uh, just to make sure. And that, funnily enough, it's around that for both of them. Uh, but yeah, so I, I can't tell you exactly how many tests I have. Okay. On the back end, then, if you had to just like eyeball how much code you've written, like what would you say the the split up is in between provider code and just like your actual application code? Um, could you clarify what you mean with provider code? Oh, sorry, like each API, like every SaaS app that you integrate with. Oh, right. Um, yeah. So 
the the integrations are maybe 30 or 40 percent of uh of the whole code so yeah so i know i said that it was the bulk of the code before and i guess that this uh, speaks against that but it still feels like that's where the most work is done and it, like it's definitely where i've spent the most time and assume to be spending a lot more time in the future uh, if i'm going to be writing a lot of integrations which i probably am right so when it comes to figuring out like which integrations to add, do you have like a feedback form that customers fill out or do you just kind of just like keep a pulse on the community and you just add them like basically ad hoc? I add them when people have been asking for them and especially if enough have been asking for them. So the first five or so I, I knew I wanted. So that was Google Suite and Slack. Those two, I don't think there's any company that I've talked to so far that don't use. And then I did discover one that actually didn't, and they were using Microsoft Office 365, so I added that as well. Uh, those are sort of the very basic ones. Um, and then I added Jira and Trello, um, and now there's Box and Zoom and uh, Monday.com and, uh, well, a bunch of others. I think I have 10 or 11 integrations so far. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's pretty much based. Like, I, don't, I don't have a, like a process for figuring that out. It's... Uh, it's based on what I sense. Okay. And then for getting feedback from customers or whatever, do they just email you directly or do you use some type of like one of those voting systems, right? Where people can go to it and be like, hey, I want this. And then everyone else votes on that and you do the top voted one. Uh, no, I don't have anything that fancy. I'm I'm just uh, trying to talk to my, my customers for now. I, I hope that will be a problem that uh, I, I can't manage that. Yeah, I think your approach is better anyways. Like, it's so nice to work with a company where it feels like you're an actual individual talking to someone who actually matters. Uh, you know what I mean? And it's not just like your customer of 42,612. Exactly. I, I really feel because I feel like I'm in a state also where I, I want to figure out exactly which problems I'm solving here. Like, is it security or is it financial? Like, are, are people more concerned about how much they're spending on all these apps or are they concerned about who has access and, and, uh, or is it something else entirely? And uh, and that for that, I just need to sort of try and not just hear what they say directly, but also try and sense what their concerns are and so on. So so that's a, that's that has to be human, I feel. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of financials, you know, earlier in this call, you mentioned that you still do uh, consulting work for the majority of what you do. You know, you can't just depend on this to, to pay all your bills, but you mentioned uh, payments aren't even a part of this app. So do you have a plan moving forward to have this be a paid app or if, if so like what type of payment providers do you think you'll use yeah so so right now i just send some invoices because the the paying customers that i do have happen to be here in denmark where, where i am so that was just easier but i do have a stripe account set up and uh, and i'm I mean i'm definitely planning to set up stripe and and integrate that with everything so uh stripe just seems to be the nicest solution to everything i guess they they recently introduced this tax plan thing for the entire world. So uh, I think before that, maybe I would have looked into Paddle as well. But uh, but yeah, I, I I don't know yet exactly what, what route I'll go. Uh, I just assume that Stripe is where you begin that journey because they seem to be so dominant in that space. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally crazy with the tax stuff. Like, cause, I mean, I'm sure it's crazy around the world everywhere, but in the US, it's like there's just a million different jurisdictions with their different rules. Like, yeah, it gets out of hand. That's that's uh, surprising to me because I thought that's that was part of the reason why the U.S. was uh, doing so well in the entrepreneurial space. I thought that was because you could actually set up something and you could serve the entire country, and it was so big. Versus here in Europe, where you have all these different countries, obviously speaking different languages, but at least uh, 
but uh, but also having uh, different tax codes and different VAT and all that. But uh, yeah, I guess it's a problem everywhere. Yeah, definitely a problem. Huh. And I think like, yeah, I think in the US you can get by, and this is maybe bad advice, like don't treat this as the law or legal or whatever, but I'm pretty sure when it comes to selling things online in certain states, like they have a specific threshold that you need to reach before you need to pay taxes on that income. So okay. like, you know, like Florida might be some state and I don't know these numbers. I'm making these up now, right? Like you need to maybe generate $50,000 of uh, sales in that state before you're eligible to have to pay taxes on that one. So, you know, unless you get really, 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 really big, then chances are like maybe you don't even need to pay that much uh, specific taxes on that. And I mean, I'm not talking taxes like avoiding income tax. Like, of course, you're always going to have to pay that. But I mean, like sales tax, which is like a U.S. thing. Right. Well, that could definitely be true. I'm uh, painfully unaware of... uh of these rules so uh so yeah i guess that's uh, ignorance is bliss so far right ignorance is bliss until like you just wake up in a jail cell for like tax evasion yes <laughs> <laughs> so going back to your project here when it comes to things like sending emails out do you use any specific transactional email services um yeah i use uh, twilio's uh, sendgrid so it's on the free plan i think that allows you to send a hundred emails per day or something which is uh, more than enough for me so far I uh, I just started the other day looking into MJML, I think it's called, from Mailjet, which is like a templating library for creating nice-looking emails. Because so far, I've just been sending out plain text, which doesn't look very nice, but uh, but that's been working quite fine. Um, so so yeah, that's the level of uh, of what I have. So in terms of like maybe other SaaS services that you're using, uh, do you have any other ones? Maybe for like logging or metrics or something? Uh, yeah. So um, so I have Mailchimp as well, which uh, is obviously used for newsletters. Um, and then I use something called FreshPing uh, by the people of Fresh. Oh, I'm not actually sure. I want I want to say something wrong here, but uh, but there's a bunch of Fresh X products. Uh, I think FreshPing is one of them, and that's just a an alive checker. So it uh, it pings the website daily or uh, no, every minute or something uh, to make sure it's up and it will send me an email and a Slack notification if the site goes down. Um, I use Datadog for uh, logging otherwise, and that just, uh, I also use the free plan for that. So I I can't go back and uh, inspect old logs too much, but uh, I get informa- information if, uh, if there's an error on the site um, on the back end. Uh, and I use Sentry for the same on the front end. I also have Google Analytics set up, but I'm not really using it, so I think I'm going to remove it actually because uh, it's not. I I don't find that much interesting uh, detail from that. I'm using something called Zeno or Zeno, um, which is similar to uh, uh, what's it called, the popular one, uh, Intercom, uh, which is like a chat app. So uh, so there's a little chat button inside the app, and uh, uh, people can click on that to to chat to me if there's something they don't understand. Uh, they don't use it very often, but it has happened. So, uh, and that's uh, it's quite a uh, fun experience. I I guess at some point I might eat those words, but uh, but right now I also always think it's cozy if uh, if people start chatting with me from inside the app. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I like services that have that, especially when you get a response back in like five minutes or something. Otherwise, it would probably be detrimental. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise it just seems like a ghost town or something like that. Like, oh, I asked a question, but I didn't get a response in five hours. Uh huh. Yeah, definitely very nice to have. It kind of falls into, like, I don't know if this is your same philosophy with, like, logging and, you know, error reporting and stuff. It's like, you know, having the logs from four years ago or something, I don't know, like, that doesn't seem that useful to me. It's like, when I want to look at logs, it's like when things are going wrong. 
like to react to something. Do you feel the same way? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the the only purpose I use them for, and and I don't feel any. I mean, uh, hopefully, maybe in in the future, I'm gonna have a whole business intelligence set up, and I want to do data mining, looking at all the uh, historical whatnot. But uh, but that's simply not interesting to me at this point. So so yeah, I just want to be notified and and be able to look back from throughout the day what has happened, so that I can get a better view of if something is going wrong. That's that's important, obviously, but. To see what happened last year, that uh, I I can't think of a reason to do that right now. Yeah, yeah. I wish I can ever get a SaaS app that's so popular to where yeah you can get just like look into your database and maybe you're dealing with like hundreds of thousands of new you know rows coming in per day or something where you can just be like show me this 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 and that and then immediately get like a sample size of like ten thousand. Right. Yes. Well, maybe someday. <laughs> now going back to your tech stack here, you know, you mentioned you are using Postgres, not so much using any queuing, so maybe no Redis, I guess, or no. At this point, this uh, well, I've been optimizing my database access by trying to uh, to have as few queries as possible, um, and actually, that's come a little bit out of necessity because my database server is uh, is. Where is it sitting now? I forget, but it's uh it's far away from my app server. So so this uh there's a bit of latency there, uh which uh I I took as the the a good uh, reason to just optimize how many uh, requests I send that direction. Um, so I try and combine uh as many queries as I can into one, uh which is an interesting challenge um as well. So so Postgres can return. Uh, it can you can create uh, JSON out of a, a query in Postgres, so I, you can actually combine several queries into one and combine those into a, a JSON result, and then send that back uh, from the database to the app server. And I do that sometimes. Huh, that is super interesting. I had no idea that was possible. Like I know about like JSON and JSON B columns, but this sounds like very very different. Like you're actually literally returning JSON from the database. Yeah, very neat. How did you like stumble upon that feature? Uh, well, that was because I so this uh, the system that I told you about where I I, uh, I create this Redux thing on the the front end that is established from all the tables that I think are the most necessary for the front end to have at all times, which is by now is maybe fifteen twenty or something. So so there was like a, all these tables I was querying one at a time um, every time you start it up. And that was getting slow. That was getting like painfully slow. And I thought, okay, this must be possible to do in just one request. And it turned out it was. I just had to combine them into a, like a JSON result. And then that is just the JSON result that I pass on all the way to the front end. So that's uh, that feels very uh, nice. It will possibly create a problem if I start to do sharding at some point. But uh, I don't know that I will ever need to do that. I think I can probably live with one Postgres database uh, almost forever. Yeah, I think there was like some blog post from, I don't know, like 2010 or 11, like Stack Overflow, and like their whole entire network was basically run on a single uh, like master database, There's just one of them. Okay. Like maybe they had like read replicas and stuff, but it was just like one master. And we're talking about like all of Stack Overflow, like the entire exchange. So like getting to the point where you need to shard, it's like you need to be at like ridiculous scale. Exactly. I mean, at that point, it, it certainly won't be something that I will be able to solve anyway. I'm, hopefully there will be much smarter people uh, involved at that point. <laughs> yeah, definitely leave that one up to the VBAs. Uh-huh. Although it sounds like you shouldn't cut yourself too short. Like it seems like you have pretty thorough knowledge of Postgres in general. Uh. I don't know. I, it feels very much like uh, daunting territory to me, but but also interesting. It's it's definitely important. So um, so yeah, I'm, I guess I'm I'm open to learning about it. For sure. Now, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned 
the app server and database server. Maybe now we can transition to uh, which cloud hosting provider do you use and like how are things hosted? So it's all on Heroku. Um, so uh, I am running little Docker images on Heroku. And that goes to uh, my Postgres server, which is uh, a company called Elephant SQL. So elephantsql.com. And, uh, and they just host Postgres and they do it quite well. Uh, we were using that at a company I was working for a couple of years ago, and I just thought that was very easy to work with. So I, I decided to go with them, and that's been very nice. Uh, they are running a somewhat old version of Postgres on my server by now, and uh, and maybe at some point that will become an issue. I think supposedly it's a little bit difficult to upgrade uh, Postgres running live uh, is something I've heard, but I don't know. Uh, it's fine so far. Um, yeah, and then Heroku for the app server, and that uh, I'm running on the the basic plan, so I am paying Heroku money, but but the the, the least amount you can <laughs> as uh, possible. Um, and then there's uh, Cloudflare in front of everything, so uh, Cloudflare just uh, handles uh, SSL and uh, and subdomains and uh, and and that. Yeah. Nice. So when it comes to the Heroku setup with the one uh, application, there is it just running one Dino then? It is. Yeah. So like I said before, this uh, so I have one uh, monorepo. Uh, every all the code is uh, is in that same uh, repository. I sort of have a microservices architecture internally, you could say, because they're they're split into folders and they're started by a little like uh, orchestrator that just sits in the so it runs in the same process in the same container. But it would be pretty easy to split out into different containers if I should want to. Which I uh, expect that I will want to at some point, but uh, but for now it it was just easy enough to just run them in the same process, so that's uh, that's what they're doing. So uh, so even though there's a few different sort of services in there, I just uh, put it all into one Docker image. Okay, now knowing that you were going to be using Heroku for the setup, I know you have prior experience using the Elephant SQL site before. Did you think about maybe using Heroku's Postgres add-on, or is it, did it come down to like cost or just like familiarity with the other one? So I didn't start with Heroku, actually. When I started this, I was using uh, the Versal guys. They were called Zite now back then, or Zite just. And that was a very, very nice tool. They So you could just type Zite in some place that had a Docker file in it and it would, uh, it would create a new uh, subdomain for you on, on their uh, servers. And, uh, and it would host it. It was just like magic. And I was so happy about it. And uh, I was using that happily. And then they uh, decided to transition into uh, to a more Lambda uh, style architecture. And I actually got a little bit upset with them because they, they it's fine to, to pivot. Obviously, everybody's entitled to that. But they were sort of uh, saying, well, this is where things are going and, and you will all uh, be better off doing this. And I was like, well, I just want my Docker images. Don't tell me how things should be. So, um, so that sort of, uh, I guess, made me a little bit of an older man right there. Like I was like, okay, I'm gonna go with something safe now. Like nobody got fired for buying IBM kind of style, and uh, and decided to go with Heroku, which I I knew, and I just knew that okay, here I can host a Docker image, and uh, so it will work quite easily, and uh, and I don't have to worry about it. Nice. And then for the Docker side of things, are you also running Docker in development with like Docker Compose or something else? Um, not at the moment. I probably will. It's so, so I'm in a little bit of an annoying situation with my Docker setup because I, I bought one of the new MacBooks that has the M1 chip. And so actually building my Docker image on that is problematic because 
that uh, tries to build it then for the ARM architecture, which Heroku doesn't support. So, and Docker has something called build X, which allows you to build for different architectures. And uh, that is giving me problems because, so I'm running a virtual Linux machine on my MacBook uh, because that's the development environment I like, but running, making build X built for uh, Intel inside of that has been difficult for me. I'm, I'm not sure what's going on, but, uh, but I haven't been able to figure it out. So I have a, a, a PC as well standing here. So I, I, uh, I use that to, to build those images right now, but I really want to change that. But yeah, so um, given all of that, I'm, I'm just using my virtual Linux machine as my built uh, environment, and that just runs Node uh sort of raw if you will and uh and then i run run postgres in a little docker image on my on my development machine okay yeah that sounds like you have some like massive amount of virtualization like nesting going on right it's like you're running virtualized linux on your mac to run an application there but yeah i can see definitely why you don't want to use docker locally that would be very complicated yeah I guess I'm making things hard for myself. It's just, I really, I was a little bit scared when I got this new laptop because it was a different architecture. So so it's actually been working better than I feared, but there are still some some quirks here and there that that uh, that can cause some issues, but uh, it's pretty good overall. Right. I would imagine over time, like, you know, this is such a brand new thing that those like hard to deal with things, maybe that'll become easier in a couple of months or maybe something from Docker. I don't know. Yeah, 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 for sure. That'd be kind of cool. I mean, I don't want to get too off topic on this one, but like what led you to just run a, a Linux VM inside of your Mac? And by the way, disclaimer, like I, I don't use a Mac at all. Like I happen to run, well, I don't want to say native Linux, but I, I, funny enough, like I run Linux inside of my Windows system. So I'm all familiar with this idea of like running Linux in a different OS. Um, it was, so there were two reasons. First, when I got it, the, I don't think that Docker was even working or maybe they just made it work, but there was definitely quirks with it. And I thought, okay, if I can get a Linux box running then I will at least have a, as familiar as an environment as I can think of and uh, and I can sort of isolate everything in there and and then the the docker people and everybody else can figure out how to make everything work in the the outer system and then I'm using visual studio code which has uh, incredible remoting capabilities so I could use that to connect to my virtual machine and then it really feels like that is just your local machine and uh, but I have the nice UI that uh, macOS supplies me with, like uh, they, and I don't need to worry about display drivers and uh, like whether an, a USB device will work or not, which is like the things I really dislike about Linux and never want to deal with. So this is in many ways the the ultimate setup for me. I really like having Linux as my development environment, and then the macOS as uh, the outer shell, or or Windows, by the way, because I also, like I said, I have a PC, and, and I do the same there, and uh, and I think Windows is great. I think Windows uh, works just as fine, and and uh, and any USB device you plug into that will work, so that's very nice. Um, but uh, but running on Linux uh, for, for Docker and so on is just a smoother experience. Yeah. I, I find this to be pretty cool. Like I'm from the US, you're from Denmark, other sides of the world where it's like you're using Mac OS as basically a shell for Linux and I'm using Windows as, uh, as basically a shell for Linux. Right. Yeah. So now just switching gears to go back to your app here. When it comes to deploying things, how do you have this set up? Like I know with Heroku, it's like, well, you just get push your code and you're done. But do you happen to have this set up on like GitLab or GitHub, like through CI or something like that? Or do you just do, do it locally from your box? Uh, yeah, so I have CI. I don't have CD. So uh, continuous integration is set up with the GitLab. 
So GitLab is what I use to host my source code in, and it's not that I have anything against GitHub. It was uh, pretty random, but um, but I'm pretty happy with uh, GitLab for for the for the CI CD system they have. It's uh, it's very easy to work with. Um, so I set that up, and uh, and every time I check in code, uh, it will uh, compile and run linter and run all the tests and all that. And uh, and that's very nice because uh, I'm informed if I forgot to do something, then uh, then it will tell me, and I know that okay, there's a linter error that I forgot to check for or something. Um, but I did not set it up to continuously deploy, and the reason is that I don't trust my tests enough. Like I I don't have good enough end-to-end -end tests that I will just want it to deploy all the time. Uh, I expect that I will be setting that up in the not too far distant future, um, because it feels like the only right way to work for me is that you should push your code and then it's in production but um or at least you merge something to master or main whatever they call it now is it but uh but then it's uh then it's deployed um but um but yeah i didn't i didn't set that up just yet so i uh, build the docker image on my pc whenever i feel like okay this is good for deploying and uh and then i push that to the to the heroku docker registry and then that deploys Okay. Yeah, it's a pretty cool setup. I mean, yeah, I'm sort of in the similar concept of where CI, CD is nice and all, but there's just like an extra level of comfort knowing you control the actual deploys yourself, even if it's just running like one extra command. Yeah. I think it's better when you have a team, then there's a bigger risk than that one branch could can diverge or something like that. You, you really want to keep it up to date all the time. But as long as it's a single developer kind of thing, then deploying at when you feel like it, I think works uh perfectly well right now just speaking about like the single developer experience do you happen to like open up pull requests for yourself or do you just like just hack away on the main or master branch no i always create branches but that is it's a little bit annoying that i don't know why because every time i work in a team i'm very good i think myself at uh, at sticking with what i'm working on so that branch is descriptive and stuff but when i'm working on my own stuff i tend to put uh, unrelated changes into the branches that i work on so i always create a new branch for whatever feature i'm going to create just because it's nice i think to have in the end i i sort of uh, make quite a few commits um, that aren't necessarily very nicely structured. And then uh, once I feel like something is finished, I, I go into GitLab and I look at the pull request, uh, merge request as it's called there, uh, and, and compare the two branches in a, in a nice view and see, oh, these are the changes that I'm about to merge here now. And I think that's a, a pretty nice uh, process. So I sort of uh, do a little code review of my own code there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's... Uh, that's uh, pretty much what I do and and I don't know why I tend to go off on tangents uh, even in my own branches but that uh, that's some psychological phenomenon that I can explain <laughs> right yeah you just make that one feature branch it's like update terms of service blah 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 or whatever and then before you know it there's like 12 commits about like I don't know like eight different backend pages yeah <laughs> it happens that's cool though to see that you do your own code reviews on yourself because yeah, I'm the same way. Like for whatever reason, seeing like I happen to use GitHub instead of GitLab, but like the idea of looking at that code in that UI, it for whatever reason, it just it gives me in a different state of mind than looking at the diff in my editor or something like that. Like it just gives me more confidence reading it on GitHub for some reason. That's a very good point, actually. I hadn't thought of that. I, I always thought of it as just a way of looking at the whole thing together. 
But it's probably true that I sort of also go into reviewer mode when I'm looking at GitHub or GitLab. It's like a little bit, okay, now I need to uh, look out for, for potential problems that I hadn't spotted or something. I think it's true. Yeah. I guess one cool setup too about your setup here with so many different operating systems at your disposal, you can kind of test everything in different browsers and in different setups, right? Like before you push it out. Yeah. Uh, so I don't uh, support uh, IE 11 or anything like that, but uh, but it is nice to have Windows available. I, I feel like uh, it's, it's a big uh, asset to have. Uh, and I'm, this, uh, I can't think of anything right now, but I feel like this has been a number of situations where I was like, okay, this, it's good that I have Windows available as well. Uh, and not just Mac OS. Yeah, it's just one little, little tiny bit of like extra confidence that, okay, I really tested this for real. It's not just like, well, I hope it works. That's true, yeah. So now thinking about, uh, you know, things that can maybe go wrong and like, well, I hope it works or whatever. Uh, how do you plan for any type of like disasters or unexpected events? Do you have your database servers being like auto backed up or anything like that? Yeah, so Elephant SQL uh, automatically backs up every hour and uh, and that gives me pretty decent confidence. Um, so that's the only backup system I've set up uh, at the moment. Um, I've Since I'm, this service is potentially something to help companies uh, uh, respect GDPR and so on, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty vigilant about uh, doing that myself. And I don't want uh, copies of my database lying around in places that aren't documented. And uh, like I, all the tokens that I get from uh, uh, OAuth and so on, I encrypt those so that even if you were to get a hold of my database, you still couldn't just access it without at least also having my secrets. Um, because I feel like it's it's uh, it's something I I need to be a little bit if I, if I want to respectably say that I help with security, then I need to have that in order myself. So I hope that uh, Elephant's backups are are reliable, but they definitely uh, appear to be. Nice. Yeah, it's really cool to see that they have hourly backups because a lot of these database services, well, at least the ones that I've worked with, it's like maybe you get like one backup per day or maybe two, like every 12 hours or something. But this is this like all the time one hour or did you configure that like because they just let you choose the interval? I didn't configure it. It might be configurable, but uh, but that was the default in, in, in that case. Um, so and and in addition to that, there's a button that says backup now, and then that will just be added on top of the list. So I do that every time I'm about to do something where I feel a little bit iffy. Um, so that's that is definitely very uh, comfort installing. Yeah, for sure. And I guess iffy would be what like some type of database migration or something like that. Yeah. Nice. Now, in terms of like just being notified if things go wrong, do you have any Heroku add-ons or external sites that you have hooked up to get notified if the site happens to go down or you know doesn't start throwing 200s? I know you mentioned you have the, what was it, fresh pings or whatever, yeah. but uh, I, I guess they do that, right? Uh, so they do that if the site stops responding. Um, so that's the, like, obviously the, the smoke test, if you will, or the first responder. Uh, and then in addition to that, I have Datadog, which is uh, like my logging uh, thing. And that is set up to send me messages on Slack or email if uh, if there are errors registered in the in the backend log. So if uh, if anything that is tagged as an error in the backend uh, is registered, then uh, then I will be informed of that. Okay. Do you recall like the last time you got notified of some type of backend exception and like what it was? Yeah, it happens now and then, but it I but it's never been anything serious. So uh, no, I don't think I can really think of any interesting example uh it's yeah no sorry yeah it's no problem so what you're saying basically is you're the best developer ever and you never write any bugs and everything works that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's that's the gist <laughs> of it yeah 
<laughs> yeah, that is cool to see though. That you're not just getting hammered with like 500, and you're always like trying to put fires out or whatever. Right. Right. I guess that's also interesting, right? Because like as a solo developer, it's like you're responsible for all of the code written, and you know. I was just joking around there about you saying like the best developer ever type of thing, but it's like, if you introduce a bug or whatever, I don't know, like when I'm on solo projects, I tend to be more critical of my own work. I don't know if you're the same way. I guess so. Yeah. You yeah, know, there's definitely some truth in that. Um, obviously uh, there's also a bit more, like I've, uh, I feel like I take it very seriously because it, it like if something does go wrong, it, it comes crashing down on my head uh, really badly and that would be very stressful. So I, I feel like this, uh, uh, compared to where you are a team and you know that there's uh, people who will help you look into problems if they arise, I would never not be professional there, but maybe I would feel a little bit more relaxed uh, about uh, the type of code I write. I don't know. Yeah, it's basically that, right? It's like, it's, it's just having that like second set of eyes knowing that someone else is going to be looking at it. And it doesn't mean like you slack off and you try to like, you know, just purposely rush it out there. But yeah, I feel like I triple and like four times check my own stuff instead of just like maybe like double checking it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building the service out? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so one thing that is uh, maybe interesting to people that I like, thought was a little thing I came up with is I'm I'm using Markdown for writing my test data. I don't think I've seen that anywhere else, but uh, but so in a company I was working on uh, before this, the company that was using Elephant SQL, we kept uh, Excel sheets with test data in it um, for setting up unit tests. So we, we had this big test organization or a couple of them with uh, with test people and t test plans and all the, all the things that we had in our database. And, and it was quite tedious to set up. Um, and I didn't like so much having all these spreadsheets. Uh, and I also don't like writing that stuff in as JSON or something because I, f I feel like that's not very readable. So I uh, discovered some a guy created a way to use Markdown as configuration files. So uh, he basically made a parser for Markdown or he used a parser for Markdown but that creates a JSON as a, as the output. And so you can write a configuration file as Markdown, uh, which is a pretty nice concept in and of itself. Um, and be, but because Markdown has tables, uh, that just makes it a very nice uh, uh, place to write uh, test data. Like if you need to write something tabular, uh, your editor can help you format it because uh, at least Visual Studio Code has a formatter for that. Uh, most editors probably do. So you write some some tables in Markdown and you uh, tell it to format it and, and make a nice looking table where you can easily see what uh, you've written. Um, so that's kind of cute, um, I think. Other than that, I don't know that I'm the, the what I feel like what I'm doing is is pretty straightforward for how SaaS services are made these days. So and that's uh, because I I don't want to stray too far away from from best practices and all that. Uh, I guess. Okay. Yeah. That definitely is a really cool idea. I've never thought about using Markdown to make like test fixture data. Is there a reason you chose that instead of just looking into YAML or something like that? Or did you find YAML to be like JSON where it just starts to get a little bit too unreadable? Yeah. For tabular, the, like for tables, uh, YAML and JSON are both very uh, sort of vertical. Like it's nice to be able to write something that looks more like an Excel spreadsheet, but where you don't have to actually open Excel and flip between uh, the tabs in Excel to look at different tables. Like I can still just open this in my editor and I can scroll up and down, but it's in a in a more readable way. I guess I should maybe write a blog post about this or something so that it's a little bit uh, difficult to explain, but uh, but I hope that 
the message comes across. Yeah, it definitely comes across. And by the way, just for listeners out there, uh, do you want to drop maybe the name of that Markdown library just so they can go check it out? Uh, I think it's called MDConf. Okay. I can find that for you and uh, and put it in the in the show notes or, or if you have. Right. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop a link to that one later on in the show notes. So, so by the time this episode's up, then people will be able to check it out. Cool. So Christian, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, so my name is Christian Dupont with a K. So K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-D-U-P-O-N-T. And the T is silent. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and you can find me uh, on all your favorite uh, social media and all that if you want. Nice. And that is that just spelling your name out with like no underscores or hyphens or whatever? Just straight up? Yeah, without a space or anything. That's at least my Twitter handle and my LinkedIn handle and uh, most other handles, I think. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.